Phew! Dynamic! everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic That's Gaming Brothers. That's right. right. Let's thank Barry again for coming on to the uh, Premium Edition Lounge, as we call it. Yes, Th- thanks for keeping our lights on. Our exclusive series that just features Barry and nothing else. Do you know what I like about Barry? He helps us keep our lights on, but it's only the neon sign that says Premium Edition Lounge. It's the yeah, only it's light a nice we have sign, on. Though. It's a nice it sign. Is. It's very bright, but it's the only thing that causes gives us the light in the studios. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but eating eating my sad can of cold soup by the light of Premium Edition Lounge is is a nice is it's a nice reminder of where we started. You have the soups. I just have beans. Oh, mine might be beans, but it might be very old beans that are now soup. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. I remember when when producer Doug is the one that buys our groceries, and he said you only get beans until you make something good. That was that was many years ago, which might explain all the farts I've had to cut out of this podcast. <laughs> Uh, nothing like a good old fart joke to get us going. Anyway, Zach, what have you been recently been playing? Because we talked about Battletoads, I got into a Battletoads mood. So I played Battletoads Double Dragon, the Battletoads Double Dragon crossover that we talked about in the episode that we did on Battletoads. This game was developed by Rare in 1993 and released for the Sega Genesis, NES, Super Nintendo, and Game Boy. I played the Sega Genesis version because that's the version that Seth and I owned. And yeah, it's a great game. Uh, It's a weird game because Battletoads and Double Dragon are two franchises that don't really seem like they'd mesh together besides the fact that they're both created by Rare in the sense that Battletoads is about anthropomorphic toads who are in space trying to stop an evil queen and Double Dragon is about gang wars. But do you know what would help with your gang wars? Anthropomorphic toads. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Having like eight foot tall toads would definitely help stop gang wars. Or at least help you win gang wars. Also help you win gang wars. (laughs) I don't know if it'll help you stop them. (laughs) Yeah, there'll still, still be more, but you'll have you'll have toads on your side. I feel like that's the premise of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, especially the live action one. <laughs> the, the movie's pretty much just about gangs and turtles. I know. It's been a long time since I've seen them. Anyway, Battletoads Double Dragon, great game. You can listen to all about us talk about it in the last episode, and we go into more detail on it than that. Anyway, uh, Seth, what have you been playing? So recently I've been playing Myst, Ooh. Uh, developed by Scion Worlds, and this Myst was released in 2021, which was different than the other Mists that were released, because uh, Myst has been released a lot. This one is a remaster. It's another remastered of Myst, and since I own all of the Myst, I had to get it. In fact, I thought I got it when I went to PAX with Zach and I bought Mist for the Switch, but it wasn't Mist. It was Real Mist. Don't get that game. That game's disappointing. Do you know how disappointing that game is? When you open a door, it uses the AOL Instant Messenger door. <laughs> it does. Any game that you could describe as uses AOL Instant Message sounds and it's not Emily is Away, it's probably not a great game. Anyway, the one that was released in 2021 is glorious. It is a very remastered, beautiful, and I would say definitely the definitive edition of the game 
game right now. I've been playing through it. I did all of uh, Stone Ship, which is the world that is in the boat that is sunk, and you have to raise the boat and then go through it. And I also did the mechanical world, which is the gears. You have to go to the clock tower, and you have to put in the right time, and then the gear opens. Um, so now I'm on the Selenic world, which is the one through the spaceship. And after I do the Selenic world, I'm going to be going to the tree world, uh, and then I will be done with Mist. And to be super excited, I've been going through the game without too much help. I ha I did need it a little bit with the spaceship puzzle because that puzzle is dumb. I also put in the right combination. Well, I didn't put in the right combination, but I used the right logic to get to the combination. I was really happy about that. So fun story. I played uh, Mist with Classic Dad and we got to the sound puzzle and he had to help me because he, because you have to use, so there's a couple ways you can solve this, but you have to move these essentially sliders and each level of the slider has a different note and you have to play the song from a random book in the library that has the correct sequence on the organ to get the right tone to match it to the right slider to the right tone and that's how we did it when I was a kid dad was really good with knowing what tones things were and he matched it however going back now I realized it's in a scale and it starts at the low end on the bottom of the slider and it goes to the high end and you could just count the keys <laughs> and then you just move it up by the right number of keys and you could solve it and I was going to tell dad about that but instead I'll just tell him in the episode like I just did. Anyway, after I beat Mist, I maybe I'll go and play Riven, but I don't think Riven has been remastered yet, and that makes me sad. I don't even think there was like a real Riven, like the real Mist. There was a real Riven. Oh, oh, well, like a bad version of Riven. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Riven has only been released once, and that is as yeah. Riven, the sequel to Mist. I really think that they should remaster Riven. I know that they're currently working on Firmament, and I think they're working on something else, so they're probably too busy to work on remastering Riven, but anyway, Riven is a phenomenal game. Anyway, so it was Mist, the one released in 2021, and the one that was released back in the 90s. Great game, and it runs pretty good on the deck. Apparently Mist 2021 was uh, is available in, in VR. It is also available in VR. You only have to buy it once, and you can select whether or not you start it in VR. I packed my VR stuff away, and I have never reset it back up, so maybe one day I'll play it in VR, and it'll be super exciting. Uh, I played Abduction in VR, and that was a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, let's get into the actual episode yeah let's talk about today's topic so today we are going to be talking about a company that kind of had their hands in everything so to provide context for why we're talking about today's company uh, seth and i were talking about what to talk about today and seth said he wanted to talk about the game tribes and which is a great game and we were talking about tribes a bit i would say that tribes is a better box than a game <laughs> it is a very good box <laughs> but seth said oh do you know uh who who made tribes and i said who and he said the same people who made sid and al's incredible tune machine and i said we should do an episode on the incredible tune machine and then seth said let's just do an episode on dynamics because they're the company that made them they also did red baron which they did is, yeah so, which is also a good game and also just an entirely different game than both incredible tune machine and tribes yeah yeah for sure so we're going to talk about dynamics and yeah i mean seth and i have memories of playing dynamics games interestingly enough Seth and I got into a very heated argument uh, just a moment ago because I remember playing the Incredible Tune Machine, which was the sequel to Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes. But Seth insists that we played 
Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes. Then we found out through logical deduction that Seth likely played Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes, and I likely played a pirated copy of Incredible Tune Machine. The reason for that, when Sid and Al's Incredible Tune came out, the intro to the game was Dynamics, a Sierra company. But by the time that the reissue or the the changeover, it had that the owner was Sierra Online yeah. and was not Dynamics. But it was the same. Jeff Tunnel is the, like, it's Jeff's creature because it comes up with like a jeff tunnel productions yeah they're almost identical games just one has cd quality like music and stuff and an intro which is ridiculous well anyway to get into dynamics we'll talk about their history dynamics started back in 1983 and was founded by jeff tunnel and damon sly who at the time were two graduates from the university of oregon originally it was named software entertainment company which is a very generic name for a company and they published one game stellar seven and made about four thousand dollars off of it and then they decided they needed to change things up uh for one thing they should probably change the name of their company <laughs> because software entertainment company it, that would confuse me if i was in a store and someone was like hey you want to play a game made by software entertainment company and i'd be like yeah sure can i pay you with dollar bills from my pocket and, and we'll talk a little bit about this but originally the software entertainment company was really jeff's desire to be a publisher right so you would just see games that were published by software entertainment company except you didn't see games you saw a game we say that we they made four thousand bucks off of it and really we're like I think it's time to change things up. It's not that Stellar 7 was a bad game. In fact, Stellar 7 was actually a really good game. The issue was, it costs a lot of money to be a publisher, and they were not netting the type of money that they wanted. <laughs> it was really that they really only made like 4000 bucks after cost yeah, yeah, of being yeah. a publisher, which... If you didn't have all those costs of being a publisher, maybe they would have had more money. Yeah. Now, Stellar 7 was released in 1983 for the Apple II by Software Entertainment Group and then re-released the following year again for the Apple II and also for the Commodore 64. And that re-release was handled by Penguin Software. Stellar 7 is a first-person arcade tank simulation, which has wireframe graphics. You are the pilot of the Raven and must go through seven levels defeating enemies to get to the next star system. This all might sound familiar to fans of Battlezone because the game started out when Damon Sly was playing Battlezone and a neighbor friend asked him if he could make a game similar to it. So he did. Damon got on his Apple II, which had a one megahertz CPU and 48K of RAM, and he would go on to figure out how to create wireframe 3D graphics and do the math required on a 6502 so that it would play fast enough, which is impressive on an Apple II, which can barely handle text. He would go on to code up the three space engine, which he would continue to use, maintain, and upgrade to build build Stellar 7, and wrote the entire game in algorithm form into actual notebook paper. Then he would go on to translate the notebooks into 6502 assembly, and would type the entire code to get the game to actually work. All while, Damon was living at home with his parents, and didn't have any external pressures to create the project. However, did need income, so he got a job. Where did he have that job? Why? Other graduate of University of Oregon, Jeff Tunnel, hired Damon to come work at his software store computer tutor which is a great name for a store yeah that's the best name for a store <laughs> that's i i can imagine like during this time this is like the late 80s how many stores called computer tutor were out there in the wild all owned independently jeff and damon uh ended up becoming fast friends because both of them didn't want to work at, at jeff's computer store including jeff and they wanted to go work in the gaming industry damon uh knew he had a pretty good game on his hand 
hands with Stellar 7 and thought about going to the various publishing companies such as Electronic Arts, Sierra, or Broderbund. But Jeff said no. Jeff was like, how about I publish your game and we'll do it together. So Jeff would end up selling his software shop and together they formed up this company, Software Entertainment Company, or SEC, to publish the game. Now, there's this fun side tangent that we have to go into about Stellar 7. And this fun fact about Stellar 7 is that well-known author Tom Clancy in 1988 named Stellar 7 as one of his top two favorite video games. He stated that he thought it was out of print at the time of the interview, but that it was a simple space arcade shoot-'em-up and that it was so unforgiving, it was just like life. Which he thought was a perfect video game for him to play while he was on his exercise bicycle. He said he would just boot up the game, get on the bicycle, and grab the controller and just have a blast. His favorite game, however, was not Stellar 7, which was his number two. Tom Clancy's favorite game in 1988, since time has changed, I don't know what his current favorite game is, but... His favorite game in 1988 was Leather Goddess of Phobos, which was a game that is an interactive fiction game, which was developed and published by Infocom and was <laughs> Infocom's first sex farce. And in this game, you had selectable gender and a selectable naughtiness level. Ooh. <laughs> so the game would become more lewd. This game was an interesting game in its own right, since it also included, beyond having a 3D manual and 3D glasses for the Manual, it included a scratch and sniff card uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> that you would scratch and sniff at certain points in the game. And But don't worry, it smelled like either pizza or chocolate. For a game that was lewd, people were worried, but there was nothing to be worried about since all the scratch and sniff smells were mostly innocuous. As a side note, Leather Goddesses of Phobos would go on to be Infocom's fifth top selling game of all time so there was a market for uh, a sex farce game and tom clancy was a fan but we're gonna go back to the damon and jeff saga now and maybe one day we'll do uh for episode 269 we can talk about leather goddesses of phobos <laughs> maybe we could get tom it's tom, like, tom clancy's still is he dead he died 10 years ago. Well, maybe he's playing Weather Goddesses of Phobos in the in, in heaven. Anyway, back to the Damon and Jeff saga. They realized that they really didn't have the money or connections or the infrastructure to be a publisher. So they would make the decision to close Software Entertainment Company. Then Damon convinced Jeff, maybe we should just be game developers and pitch ideas to publishers. And Jeff was in. Thus, they formed Dynamic Software Development in March of 1984. Now, the first publisher that they would go to work with is Penguin Software, who would, with their help, re-release Stellar 7, except as an actual publisher. And they would continue to work with Penguin Software and would start working with Electronic Arts. They would go on to create sequels to Stellar 7, including one of the first games for the Commodore Amiga, Arctic Fox, which would go on to become quite successful. They would end up working with Kevin Ryan and Richard Hicks on the development of Arctic Fox, and after the success of it, they would, they being Kevin Ryan and Richard 
Richard Hicks would come on to Dynamics as owners and partners of the Dynamics software development. And by September of 1986, the company would go on to drop the software development part of their name and just shorten it to Dynamics. Now, they would go on to release a number of games for the Commodore 64, including Project Firestar, which would go on to be an extremely successful game for the C64. In fact, Project Firestar was one of the first survival horror games that would go on to help define the genre as a whole. Uh, limited ammunition, avoiding enemies, solving puzzles versus combat, these were all present in Fire Project Firestar. The game is pseudo-3D, uh, and it's a side-scrolling action-adventure game, where you can move left or right across terrain, all the while blast enemies with a laser rifle, uh, and going through doorways, which is very traditional of survivor horror games. And this was one of their first games where it was more interactive fiction than it was simulation. So Arctic Fox and Stellar 7 are simulation games. You're playing in a tank and shooting things. Maybe it'll be a flight simulator. Maybe it'll be a robot simulator. Regardless, they're all they're simulation games, which was really like where Dynamics was drawing their strength from. Uh, so then they started doing Project Firestar, which was an interactive media, interactive fiction, I think is what they're calling it. The difference between like a, a simulation game like Arctic Fox and an interactive fiction game like Project Firestar is that Pro Project Firestar might need to have a story and cutscenes. And cutscenes and stories mean actors and writers which frankly you don't need for a simulation game which drives up costs now with all of their success even if it was difficult for them to bring the products to market they decided to expand the company they built out an image production studio that included photography and lighting facilities and brought on color scanning and image processing as well as a photo development lab this was to help with getting back into self-publishing as they needed these facilities to be able to create the packaging and manuals for the games they would also go on to hire share Al Tucker to be in charge of makeup, costume design, and casting actors. Now, Dynamics' most successful games were simulators. Tank, flight, etc. Uh, they desperately, though, wanted to get into interactive entertainment, hence why they invested a lot of money into a studio for interactive entertainment. And this really led them to the release of Project Firestar, which was good, but also extremely difficult for them to get off the ground. Jeff was confident in Dynamics' financial future, but also moving back into publishing really cost the company a lot of money and would stress their resources. They would go on to self-publish A-10 Tank Killer and David Wolf Secret Agent. One of these games would be a success. And maybe if the other one was too, what would happen in the future wouldn't happen. A-10 Tank Killer, a combat flight simulator which was uh the bread and butter of dynamic strengths would go on to be that very successful game uh and was one of the first game to fully support vga graphics which allowed for 256 colors wow i like that they evolved their simulators where it's like first it's a tank then it's a plane yeah and then there's something else that they do as well they'll be uh they also do mechs so they do mechs planes and tanks david wolf's secret agent was uh more costly as it featured digitized cutscenes with bit mapping and 3d animations and actors however it had critical reception computer gaming world would go on to state the game had too few action sequences and though digitized footage was cutting edge for the time they would go on to conclude that the game would not be worth playing more than once. In fact, seven years after the release of David Wolf Secret Agent, Computer Gaming World would go on to list David Wolf Secret Agent in its 1996 list of worst games of all time and worst backstory of all time. So be that as it may, David Wolf Secret Agent did not sell as well as A10 Tank Killer and did not 
sell as well as it should have. Or, well, I guess should have is they as much as they wanted it to have. Now, in order to continue on as a developer and a publisher, they had to get $1.5 million to operate, which... A10 Tank Killer and David Wolf Secret Agent did not sell nearly well enough to close that gap. Uh, in fact, they would hire Tony Renecki to help with the business side of the house and would go on to license out the three space engine that they've used for all of their simulation games that was handcrafted from the beginning by Damon. They would license that out to Sierra Online in August of 1989 to help obtain funding and keep the lights on. They would also go get Media Mediagenic, which was formerly Activision, to publish their games Death Track, a sci-fi racing game, Mech Warrior, another combat simulator in mechs this time, and Die Hard, uh, specifically the DOS version of the movie tie-in game. They would release all three of these games in December of 1989. And even though they were successful, especially Mech Warrior, they were still in a financial hole and they could not get out. March 27th, 1990, Sierra Online would come in and buy Dynamix for $1.5 million due to their impressive catalog of simulation games. Now, during the acquisition, Dynamics was working on a new game because they always were just kind of working and working on new games. And they were working on Red Baron. And December 19th, 1990 the end of the year that they were bought, they would go on to release Red Baron and it would be one of the first games of many that they would release that was published by Sierra Online where Dynamics in the intro would also get a tag that would say part of the Sierra family under their logo. Now, following the release of Red Baron, Dynamics would go on to release Rise of the Dragon in 1990, and then the adventures of Willie Beamish in 1991. Both games released on DOS, Amiga, Mac OS, and the Sega CD. The Adventures of Willie Beamish was also the last game that Jeff Tunnel would be around for. Uh, he would leave Dynamics and would go start Jeff Tunnel Productions. And while technically its own company, his future games would go on to continue to be released by Sierra Online under their Dynamics brand. Yes, which does cause for some confusion when trying to look up how many games were created by Dynamics because they will also be listed the published games that were created by Jeff Tunnel Productions. <laughs> I mean, but were they really, they were created by Dynamics. Which concludes his first game, which was a Jeff Tunnels production game, but published under Dynamics. Oh, the Incredible that's Machine. Why it has the little creature. Which spawned its own series. So The Incredible Machine was just the first game in a very big series that has numerous spin-offs and sequels. The Incredible Machine, for those who have never played it, is a Rube Goldberg-inspired puzzle game. For those who don't know Rube Goldberg, this is a, a kind of a popular style of art where, like, for example, a ball goes down a, a ramp and hits a domino, and the domino hits a line of dominoes, and that falls onto a like, tea kettle, which ignites, and the air blows a balloon and the balloon you know what they are they're there's those elaborate set pieces that are like the one that's shown at the beginning of back to the future and all it does is make toast this was a game the incredible machine where you pretty much just designed rube goldberg machines uh, in the game you're required to complete an objective by finishing a puzzle with missing components you are given a limited amount of components all the components need to be used for the puzzle and your job is to figure out where these puzzle pieces go and to make sure the machine works uh, this could be for example getting a bowling ball to 
land in a specific area. To do this, you might need to make sure that certain ramps are at the correct angle, or that the bowling ball gets stopped in the right place so that it falls into the right part of the, uh, the machine so that it would uh, eventually get to its goal. The Incredible Machine saw a numerous amount of sequels, uh, including a numbered sequel just called The Incredible Machine 2, but also spin-offs and re-releases, and its own spin-off series called Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes. This spin-off series was overseen by Dynamax. Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes and The Incredible Tune Machine are two very similar games that are also very similar to The Incredible Machine. Pretty much picture The Incredible Machine with a coat of paint. Let me let me take you back to Little Zack's era. When Little Zack was discovering the origins of the internet and games that were available to be downloaded, uh, he discovered The Incredible Machine. Uh, he thought, wow, I love The Incredible Tune Machine. I'm sure I'll love The Incredible Machine. And when launching The Incredible Machine, Little Zack realized, well, this game does not look as fun because instead of having a colorful cartoon cat, you have a very photorealistic cat. <laughs> Pretty much all the devices in the Incredible Tune Machine and Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes have been redesigned to have an almost Looney Tunes or Tom and Jerry aesthetic to them. The game's primary characters are Sid E. Mouse and Al E. Cat. Sid E. Mouse being a yellow mouse and Al E. Cat being a blue cat. Uh, they kind of fit in the trope of cat versus mouse and are often central to the puzzles. As a general mechanic, Sid will always run away from Al and Al will always chase Sid. However, certain objects can be put in their way. So like if a mask is put in front of Sid, then he might use that to scare Al so that Al runs away from Sid. Or a gun could be put in front of one of them and they might shoot the other person. So there's like ways you can kind of counteract their back and forth. And sometimes this is required to complete the puzzle. And sometimes your puzzle might require you to keep Sid away from Al in order to get maybe cheese or to make sure that Al captures Sid. Now there is actually a third game in the Incredible Tunes series, but it's a Japanese exclusive that was only released on the PS1. This is Arthur to Astaroth no Nazo Makamuri Incredible Tunes and is a PS1 version of the game set in the Ghost and Goblins world. What? Yep. That's that's wild. It is. Wait, so it's an it's an Incredible Machine Incredible Tunes set in the Ghost and Goblins world, released in Japan for the PlayStation 1. Yes. That's weird. It is very weird. And the game was developed by Magical Formation using a licensed engine from Dynamax. So technically it's a Dynamax game that has a recoded paint. Like if you look at the gameplay for Arthur to Astaroth, it looks like Incredible Tune Machine. Just everything is Ghost and Goblins themed. The Incredible Machine series was actually released under a line of other games called Sierra Discovery Series, which also included other other Jeff Tunnel productions, such as Quirky and Queso's Turbo Science and Turbo Learning Mega Math. These sound boring, and if I had played Mega Math instead of Incredible Tune Machine, I probably wouldn't have strong memories from Dynamax. <laughs> Dynamax would go on to expand in 1993. Uh, they went from a studio of about 30 people to a studio of over 100 people, and because of this, they had to relocate to downtown Eugene, Oregon. After the move, Dynamax began working on their next game, Space Quest V, The Next Mutation, and that was released in February of 1993. In 1994, after completing Aces Over Europe, Damon Sly would officially leave Dynamax. From here, he would actually take a hiatus on game development. He wouldn't get back into game design until 2007, when he began work on Aces of Aces, which released in 2008. Now, after David left, Dynamax would go on to create the first game in the Metal Tech series, Metal Tech Battle Drone. Battle Drone was a robot combat game, not too different from the Battletech games, Mech Warrior, etc. Later games in the Metal Tech series consisted of Earth Siege, Cyberstorm, and 
tribes. In 1995, Jeff Tunnel returned to Dynamix, and then Sierra Online was sold to CUC International in 1996. CUC merged with HFS Incorporated in 1997 and became Sendit Corporation. And then in 1998, it was revealed that CUC was involved in an accounting fraud scheme. A French company, Havas, acquired Sendit Software for $800 million in cash, and then Havas was acquired by fellow French company Vivendi SE. And in May of 2001, Havas Interactive was renamed Vivendi Universal Interactive Publishing, and then to Vivendi Universal Games. Man, what a sequence of events. Vivendi would go on to work on Evil Genius. Which is a great game. Following Jeff's return to Dynamix, the company would put out more games in the Red Baron series, the Incredible Machine series, the Tribe series, and in a line of sports title called Front Page Sports. If it was one thing that Dynamix was good at, it was churning out stuff. <laughs> yeah, they released so many games. They released a lot of games and sequels to games, and they were usually pretty good games. In 1999, Sierra Online officially underwent a restructuring, and in 2001, Dynamix was shut down. A very sad day. Following Dynamix's closure, several members of the team would start Garage Games, which uh, would go would stay local in Eugene, Oregon. Jeff Tunnel and fellow ex-Dynamix colleague Rick Overman would leave Garage Games and go found the company Pushbutton Labs. In total, from 1984 to 2001, Dynamix would develop over 92 games, which if you think about that, 84 to 90 is six years. And then from 90 to 2000 is 10 years, 17 years, 92 games. Average is about five games a year. <laughs> five games a year these guys were putting out when Rockstar, what, did they, what have they done in the last five years? Really scaring theft out of five every year for five years. It's just a, it was a whole different world back then. But you could also tell that Dynamics kind of stretched themselves. Like they weren't just developing one type of game. I mean, they got known for their simulation games. I think there was actually an interview with uh, Damon Sly where he said that pretty much when you say Dynamex, gamers think of flight sims. And for good reason, the simulation games that Dynamex put out were great. But Dynamex was also releasing things like the Tribes games or uh, Incredible Machine or the original Battle Drome game or or Mech Warrior, or the like random educational games like Mega Math, you know, they were doing everything. So I'm kind of curious what their internal structure looked like, especially when they had over 100 developers, because I wouldn't be surprised if your development teams would be split amongst genres. Oh, absolutely. Like you would have the people that whole job was just develop incredible machine games, people whose whole job was just develop simulation games, and then like the education department. Uh, you know, it's just a very interesting, I think, company and uh, yeah, tons of games. They're all pretty good. Uh, I can't really, like, when I was looking through the list of games, I was like, yeah, a lot of these are familiar, and a lot of these were pretty decent games. Yeah, the Secret Agent game probably was probably bad. but Yeah, and I think a couple of their tie-in games weren't amazing. Like, um, they did Ghostbusters 2 for DOS. And was Die Hard for DOS pretty good? There was a lot of Die Hard games. We literally had an episode where we talked about Die Hard games. Um, oh, we did? For Christmas? Oh, God. The Die Hard for DOS looks very impressive, but <laughs> this game is not very good looking i need i need you to see this game <laughs> wait i need i'm gonna just post this here hold on why does he walk like that i don't know what is going on why is he wearing that 
So in the footage of Die Hard for the DOS game, you play as Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, but he is wearing a hot pink tank top and cyan color pants, like hot pants. And he either dances with people or, and then when he walks, he walks like he is a confident male stripper. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the reason his shirt is like hot pink is because in the movie, he wears a white shirt that gets coated in blood and dirt, but it looks hot pink. So. (laughs) his pants are just teal so i like the inventory of john mcclane in this game which consists of a gun like (laughs) an extension cable a lighter pack of cigarettes an open can of beans And what I assume is a radio, which is probably the detonator from from. This looks like all the stuff that we have in our studio. <laughs> I like the open can of beans with a fork in it. Yeah, I mean that's what we have right on our desk right now. He doesn't even eat beans in the movie. He eats he eats a Twinkie. Uh, anyway, Dynamax is a fascinating company with a fascinating line of games. Some of them are good. Some of them are good. Some of them are diehard. Anyway, with that, we're going to get into our retro rewind. Seth gave me Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends for the Sega Genesis. This game was developed by Malibu interactive and published by thq in 1993 so they were publishing like super star wars at the same time (laughs) they sure were now in the last episode seth said i think this is a mega drive game i know for a fact this game was released as both a sega genesis and a mega drive game because the version i played referred to sir topham hat as sir topham hat when his name in england is the fat controller if you play the mega drive game does it refer to him as the fat controller don't know i didn't play the mega drive game i told you to play the Mega Drive version. In the game, you can play as either Thomas, who is a blue train, James, who is a red train, Percy, who's a green train, Toby, who is a trolley, and Duck, who is also a green train, but square. I wish you could play as, um, what's his name? Harold the helicopter. The Harold the helicopter. I wish you could play as um, Gordon because he's a giant train. <laughs> he's the blue one. Isn't he's he? blue, but he's big. <laughs> I've, I've ridden on a Thomas. Nice. Did I, tell you I, that? I think I have two because there used to be the one in Connecticut that used to. There are two, in fact, oh. that are in existence. There is one in Essex, Connecticut, and the other is in some weird small town that I went to in England. And they are both birthed from the same line, and they're the only two left from that line. Nice. Fun fact about the Essex, Connecticut, Thomas. I was there once with dad and a friend of his and that friend's daughter. So we saw Thomas and we had some photos with Thomas, and we saw Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. He was he was on the train. He was on Thomas. Did you get pictures of Jerry Seinfeld on Thomas? No, that would be great. That was like when Jerry Seinfeld was actually really popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that was back when Jerry Seinfeld was relevant. Yeah. We um when we were on the train, this is not as a fun story as seeing Jerry Seinfeld, but when we were on the train in England, uh, they came over the intercom to tell us there is only one other train that is from this line, and it is in Essex, Connecticut. And did you cheer? <laughs> I did. I told I told my wife, who was on the train with me in England, I said, this looks like a train in Essex, Connecticut that I've been on. And then they were like, there's only one other train like this, and it is in Essex, Connecticut. And I was like, oh, see, now I've been on both of the Thomases that exist in the entire world. Nice. For context, listeners, Seth and I grew up with, like, Seth was primarily very into Thomas, and I got into Thomas because Seth had a lot of leftover toys. Yeah, And, and episodes Thomas. of Thomas on tape that he recorded off of the TV. Oh, uh, yes. Shining Time Station. Yeah, with uh, Billy Two Feather and Didi Khan, and do you know that Billy Two Feather? Whenever I have to go to sleep, there's an episode of Thomas the Tank Engine that is a core memory of mine, where they are sleeping over at the station, and one of the children goes to Billy Two Feather and says, "I can't sleep," and he says, "Shut your eyes and pretend to sleep." <laughs> 
And whenever I go to sleep and I have trouble sleeping, I just see Billy Toothfeather in my mind telling me to just shut my eyes and pretend to sleep. Anyway, the game itself is very was very nostalgic for me because I it features a lot of music from the Thomas show, just like digitized into Sega Genesis, which growing up with a Sega Genesis and listening to Thomas music through it is like, I wish I owned this game as a child. I would have loved this game. I would play this game all the time. Your job is to primarily do assorted tasks, such as getting things that Sir Topham Hat tells you to collect. This can be a cart that has a blue triangle on it or a cart that has a yellow circle on it. I played in easy mode, even though it was children game and I was like I don't even know what I'm doing so I'll play in easy mode and he's not even very clear with his instructions he's like hey get one cart with something blue on it so you don't even have to find like a specific type of cart I assume on the harder difficulties he's like get the cart that has the blue triangle but don't get the cart that has the blue square in any case you find these and you bring them to the nearest train station and it's deposited and you get points um and then Sir Topham Hat tells you you did a very good job and you are very fast if you do it quickly <laughs> I don't know what he tells you if you're very slow maybe he's like gotta speed up next time buddy the game is actually interestingly enough entirely voice acted which surprised me for a Sega Genesis game and by entirely voice acted I mean there is one voice the entire time that reads all of the words um that is the voice of apparently Craig Erwart who was the programmer and he reads the words out and they're kind of like just cobbled together so sometimes they're the inflections wrong so it'll be like hi I am James congratulations you did a wonderful job you work fast today. Anyway, the game is actually kind of fun. I had a good time. It's a pretty simple puzzle game, but the music and the the kind of actual gameplay is um, relatively enjoyable. Uh, overall, kind of holds up. Would I play it again? I might, actually. I might try the harder settings to see if they are as hard as I imagine they'd be instead of being like, get object to station. Hopefully it's like, get this specific object to this specific station because all the stations are labeled, so... Do you know what's uh do you know what's not labeled in the game? The trains. James, Percy, Toby, and Ducks in-game sprites are missing their numbers. I also read that on some menu screens, as well as the in-game sprites, all the engines share the same face. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of scary. What is also kind of scary is when you do certain things, sometimes the face of your train will just appear in this huge square in the corner of the game and just smile at you for a second. <laughs> <laughs> then disappear oh and it is haunting <laughs> anyway does the game hold up sure will i play it again probably should you play it definitely seth next week you're not gonna play thomas game you're gonna play wario land for the game boy thank you zach had me playing uh rock and roll racing for the sega genesis which was released in north america in 1993 developed by silicon and synapse who we've mentioned before because they become blizzard and it was published by interplay productions this game is great it is like rc program but instead you could damage other cars to the point where they can't drive anymore and that makes any game better because rc proem is great rc proem with destructible cars is even better and that's what rock and roll racing is but wait there's more it also has some great heavy metal and rock songs that play while you're racing so it's like rc proem but better in all ways. It's a great game for the SNES. And if I had it when I was a kid, it would have hit the same way that RC Pro-Am did, which is just an amazing game that I would have played. In fact, I probably would have liked it even better because they had some interesting characters. They all come from different planets. It's kind of like F-Zero, except instead of driving futuristic cars, you're driving Jeeps that explode. It's like if there was like a, um, a poor man's F-Zero, like, you know, like F-Zero's happening at the top of the city and the floating like top over the city 
rock and roll racing is like happening like in the gutter. So that's kind of like what rock and roll racing is. But in rock and roll racing, there is a guy called Cyberhawk who looks like Groundhog from the boys. And if you don't know what Groundhog from the boys is, think about Hawkman from DC and then cross him with Wolverine, make his costume blue. And instead of having hands, he has hammers. And that's Groundhog. And if you do a side profile of his face, that's Cyberhawk from rock and roll racing uh so i played as cyberhawk i kept playing like i would beat a match and i would continue to play so it was kind of fun there you can actually get thrown like off the map too because there's like bumps and jumps and all that sorts of stuff i played on easy so like i won regularly which was great anyway rock and roll racing is great holds up it's a fine game zach next week you could play a game that's like rock and roll racing, except it has mice. It's Biker Mice from Mars Ooh. for the SNES. Okay, I'll do that. And with that, that's going to be our episode. Uh, if you want to contact us and send us an email, you can send us an email to classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch, all at Classic Gaming Brothers. And we are on Twitter at CG Brothers Pod. You can also listen to us or follow us on any podcast app that you have. There we go. That's where we are. Uh, Zach. Yes, Seth. Is there anything that I'm missing? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. I've been Seth. We've been the classic gaming brothers. That's That's right. right.